Abner Ishbosheth is dead, and David is now going to take the kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, saying, Look, we are your very flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul, our king, you were a real leader in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, You will be my shepherd of my people, Israel, and you will rule over Israel. When all the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, King David made an agreement with them. And Hebron before Yahweh. They designated David as king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron he reigned in Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned for 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. At this point, David is now king over all the united tribes. The narrator makes the point that he's not just the king over the nation of Israel, but he's the king over the united tribes. Because even though God wanted him to be the king, he did not want the tribes to lose their distinction. He's the one who developed the tribes and assigned land to them. Yet at the same time, you get the sense that like a lot of this is political talk. Just literally a week ago, they were in a civil war over who should be king. And a week later, they're now like, hey, we've always seen you as our king, David. We love you. We, we recognize that you're really the one giving all those victories, not Saul. Hail King David. And the nation has been divided in their heart. And you're going to see that as we go through the book. It does not take much to split the nation again. And even though he's politically a king over all the united tribes, the tribe's hearts are not united in any kind of a way. And the way that God envisioned it. And the way that he hoped for it to be. And it's going to just take the drop of a pen, so to speak, to make that crack just keep appearing over and over again. So one of the things you need to understand is we're going to be looking to, we're going to be heading towards the kingdom split in um, 1 Kings chapter 12. But that split didn't just happen overnight. Yes, God's going to say, I'm going to command the split as a judgment against you, Solomon. But that doesn't happen overnight. And when David was not where he's supposed to be, and he was not in Israel when Ishbosheth became king, and he should have been king, that caused a problem. There's going to be another thing that David does wrong that's going to cause a problem later. David's going to do another thing that's going to cause a problem later. Solomon's going to do some things. You're going to realize this split has been growing for a long time. This split has been growing for a long time. So verse 6, Then the king and his men advanced to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who lived in the land. And the Jebusites said to David, You cannot invade this place. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, saying, David cannot invade this place. Now, Jerusalem has been pretty much occupied by the Jebusites forever. Jerusalem is almost practically an unconquerable city. The hill is extremely steep. The valley is incredibly deep. And the walls are incredibly high. And there's really no way to penetrate this city. And they're saying this city is so unconquerable, even the blind and the lame would be able to fight you off. Meaning we don't really have to do anything. It's kind of like the Titanic won't sink. But David captured the fortress of Zion, and that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must approach the lame and the blind, who are David's enemies, by going through the water tunnel. For this reason it is said that the blind and the lame can enter the place. So David lived in the fortress and called it the city of David. And David built all around it from the terraces onwards. And David's power grew steadily, for Yahweh God, who commands armies, was with him. That's why David begins to grow in power. So there's this one little plot of land left over in Jerusalem, and that's the city of the Jebusites, Jerusalem. 
And so nobody's really been conquered that. You see that little circle all through all the maps that I've shown you so far. When David comes along, over the next several years, he's going to conquer everything. Everything in the green is what he conquers and completely controls as the only king over everything. And everything in the purple, he will subjugate under his power. One of the last people that he will subjugate under his power are the Ammonites, which we'll talk about in chapter 10 and 11 and 12. And so he's basically, in the next 10 years of his reign, he's going to deal with all the enemies. And he's going to cover all the green, all the purple, all the way up to the Euphrates River. His influence goes all the way to the Euphrates River. There's only two minor exceptions. In the green area, he never fully conquers the Philistines. He never fully conquers the Philistines, even though God has commanded the total conquering of the Philistines. But he does put the Philistines completely under his power. He subjugates them to his kingship. But he allows them to continue to live. And the question is, if you're able to conquer them and subjugate them, why didn't you wipe them out like you're supposed to? Why did he never deal with the Philistines? Achish took care of him for a year and four months. And Achish is the king of the Philistines. And he lived with Achish. And they became friends. And Achish gave him asylum. And David has a hard time dealing justly with the people that are close to him. He should have wiped them out. And so now you're seeing that him living in Philistine territory is now causing a second problem. And this is going to be an issue because he almost conquered everything that God gave them. Now remember, there were two promises from God when it came to the land. There was a promise to Abraham that they would have everything from the El Arash, and that's this river right here at the bottom of the green, all the way up to the Euphrates River. And David now controls all that politically. The one exception is the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians are a powerhouse. And they will come in with a vengeance when we get to the book of Kings through mostly a woman by the name of Jezebel. He will not deal with them. But other than that, he has pretty much fulfilled the Abrahamic promises of getting all that land from the, the El Arash River all the way up to the Euphrates River. The other promise that God gave was that Israel themselves were supposed to live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which he pretty much did, except for that little Philistine territory. Because they weren't allowed to conquer the Edomites. Why? Because Esau is the father of the Edomites who is a descendant of Abraham and falls under the Abrahamic promises. And God made it very clear in the book of Numbers, I gave the Edomites that land and I delivered it to them just like I'm going to do it for you. They're not allowed to conquer the Moabites. Why? They're a son of Lot. And then they're not allowed to defeat the Ammonites because Lot, another son of... So all of this, except for Philistia and Phoenicia and Aram, he has no problem. Like, there's none issue that he's not conquered Edom and Moab and the Ammonites because he wasn't allowed to conquer them. The three people that he should have but still didn't was the Phoenicians, the Philistines, and Aram. But even then, Aram is completely under his power, totally subjugated under his kingship. And the reality is, in some sense, this is the fulfillment of God's promises. They have finally been fulfilled. And he pretty much controls everything. And it tells us because... Yahweh was with him. He was a man after God's own heart. Serious issues, but a man after God's own heart. And God has rewarded him by being with him and giving them the land. 
And he's going to control this all the way through Solomon. It's not going to be until the end of Solomon's life that they're going to start losing this. And that's because of the sins of Solomon and the judgment on them. He took the city of Jerusalem, and the way that he did it was through the waterways. This is the city of Jerusalem, if you can see this. The city of Jerusalem is the purple little finger here. This is not a very big plot of land. The green is what Solomon is going to add to it. And it's placed between these three valleys. There's the Ben-Hinnom Valley right here. There's the Tyropian Valley here. And there's the Kidron Valley here. And these three valleys form what like, looks like a letter W. And it also is the last, one of the last letters in the Hebrew alphabet, the Shin. And it basically becomes the name, the beginning of the great Shemal. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall know their gods. And so the Jews took this as a sign from God that this was the holy city because it was right there smack dab in the middle of a letter Shin, which is about God being the one and only God. And so he conquered this. And these valleys are incredibly deep. And if you guys went there, they're like, they were way deeper back then. They've been filled in with just time and period and that kind of stuff. And you look around and it's, it's practically impossible to conquer. This next picture shows you that. So if you're standing on this western hill looking eastward at this purple territory, this is what you see. So you can see this, this starting down here at the very bottom, you start sloping up all the way to the end of this tree line. That's all that purple area. And these are all houses on the side. So you can see it's not a very big plot of land. Solomon is going to add all that part to it later. And then he's going to build the temple here off the picture, which is right now is the Dome of the Rock. So this isn't a huge city. These cities aren't big. This is considered like a booming New York in the ancient world. And that's how big it is. So when you're talking about cities and that kind of stuff, don't think like our definitions of cities. And then if you're kind of standing on the hill that kind of overlooks it, you can see this. And then you can see that immediately off the hill is just desert. It gets barren very quickly. And this is kind of a little oasis. And the thing that gives us a bunch of life is a thing called the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring is at the bottom of this hill that Jerusalem is on. And what the Jebusites did, see, it's not good to have your spring outside your city walls because when you're put under siege, what happens? You're cut off from your water, but the enemy has it. So a long, long time ago, the Jebusites dug an underwater um, river, so to speak, and then a shaft coming up underneath the city in a tunnel and what you could do is that you could go down this tunnel and you can drop, drop your buckets in the shaft and fill it up with water and pull it back up and you never have to leave the city walls. And not only that, then they barricaded and closed off the Gihon Spring. And then it got just barricaded and covered over and rocks filled in and trees and shrubbery began to grow that everybody forgot completely where the opening was. And so that's one of the things that made it impenetrable is one of the things when you put a city under siege is to starve them and thirst them out to death. But when they've got a constant water source and you can't find it, it makes it very hard to put them under siege. And so what David did was he discovered, this is detailed a lot more in the book of Chronicles, but he discovered this entrance, most likely because of the providence of God, and his men came through this underground river, climbed up the shaft, went out and opened up the city gates and brought the entire army in. And in that sense, it became an incredibly easy city to conquer.
that even the blind and lame were able to do it. So they were like, even the blind and lame can fight you off. And David's like, this is so easy, even the blind and lame could have done it. And that's how he used it against them. And so what he begins to do is he begins to build things up. So you have these people here living in the city, and David builds his palace up here. So you can see when most of these homes are just this tiny little square the size of my thumb, and David's palace is his entire thing, that's wealth, especially in the ancient world. Remember, your bedroom is slightly smaller than the average house in the ancient world. So when you're living in a palace that big, that's huge because nobody else does. This is the lower class down here at the bottom, and this is the upper class up here. Now, why are they called the lower and upper class? Because they're literally the lower part. The lower class is always the lowest people on the hill in the city. That's where we get that terminology. And the reason you put the lower people on the bottom of the hill is they get attacked first, and sewage flows downhill. So this is how he conquered Jerusalem. Now remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when we were first introduced to David, and he was cutting the head off of Goliath, it told us in verse 54 that David took the head of Goliath to the city of Jerusalem. So now that he's 30 years old, 15, 20 years later, he's bringing that head with him and putting it in his palace. Now, did he keep carrying it in a battle? have no idea. But he's been carrying that skull around with him for quite a long time. And so now the skull finds a resting place. So he takes the city and conquers it. And then he names it the city of David. That's humility. <laughs> but we already know that he struggles with a pride issue. Verse 11, King Hiram of Tyre sent messengers to David along with cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and he built a palace for David. And David realized that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel and that he had elevated the kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David married more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and he arrived from Hebron. Even more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of his children born to him in Jerusalem. Sha'amun, Sha'abab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishu, Nepheg, Japhai, and Elishmesh, and yeah. We've already been told in Hebron that he was multiplying wives and children. And now we're told he's continuing to multiply wives and children. He's also made an alliance with the king of Tyre. Tyre's all the way up there in Phoenicia territory. And so he's got an alliance with the king of Tyre where Tyre's just sending all these logs. Hiram Abiff. And this is going to be, not Hiram Abiff, sorry. Hiram king of Tyre. And Hiram king of Tyre is going to be the king that Solomon is going to make a deal with to build the temple and his palace which is going to be way bigger than David's palace. And so he's beginning to build relations. And we're already introduced to two bad things here. He realized that God is the one who's established him in building a city, but at the same time he's making alliances with the Phoenicians and still continuing to multiply sons and wives. And that's not good. Here's the other thing. David's going to build a state machinery it's going to look a lot more like the kings of the other nations than Saul ever had. All when you read through, you get this sense more of Saul's like a tribal king. That even though he's the king of the tribes and all that kind of stuff and the king of the entire nation, 
he tended to operate more like a tribal king. He basically just lived in his house in Gibeon and kind of moved around, that kind of stuff. And the people that were the closest to him, loyal to him, were the Benjamites, his own family members. And he just seems more like a tribal warrior who was appointed as the head of the entire nation. But when David comes along, he's going to build a capital. And he's going to build a military. And he's going to create a state machinery. And he's going to have way more wives than Saul, Saul ever did. And he's just going to really build an empire up in a way that Saul never did. So verse 17, When the Philistines heard that David had been designated king over Israel, they all went up to search for David. And when David heard about it, he went down to the fortresses. And now the Philistines had arrived and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David asked Yahweh, Should I march up against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And Yahweh said to David, March up, for I will indeed hand the Philistines over to you. So David marched against Baal Perazim and defeated them there. And then he said, Though Yahweh has burst out against my enemies like water bursts out. So he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And the Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men picked them up. The Philistines now picked them up does not mean he worship him. You go to Chronicles, Chronicles makes it very clear that they grind the idols down. For whatever reason, the author of Samuel doesn't put that part. The Philistines again came up and spread out over the valley of Rephaim. And so David asked Yahweh, what should we do? And this time Yahweh said to him, don't march straight up. Instead, circle around behind them and come against them opposite the trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, act decisively. For as that moment, Yahweh is going before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did just as Yahweh commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Gibeon all the way to Gezer. Now remember, the Philistines had a bigger plot of land during all that time. So David is attacking them, and he is conquering, and he has shrunk that territory down big time. And it's very clear that God wants him to attack. Every single time he asks, attack, attack, attack. But somewhere David stopped asking, and probably because he just felt like he had to leave Achish something out of that loyalty that should have never been there to begin with. But what's also interesting is God says, when you hear the sound of wind or marching in the treetops, what is that? It's the heavenly host, the angels. And God's making it very clear that there is a um, spiritual battle going on at the same time as the physical battle. 